Welcome back, everyone, to Circulating Ideas. I am your host today, Vera Clark, Dean and University Librarian at LaSalle University in Philadelphia. Today, I'll be talking to the co-authors of A Starter's Guide for Academic Library Leaders, published recently by ALA Editions. first author is Amanda Clay Powers, who is Professor and Dean of Library Services at Mississippi University for Women. Thank you for joining us today. No problem. Thank you for asking us. We also have Martin Garnar, who is Dean of the Kramer Family Library at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. Hello. Lovely to have you here. And then finally, Dustin Fife is Director of Library Services at Western Colorado University. Hiya. Thanks for having us. Thank you for all for being here. I'm really curious, how did the three of you meet and decide to write this this excellent, excellent book? I feel like Dustin is the connecting tissue here um, because uh, I did not know Amanda before uh, he introduced us. And so I think Dustin is the one who has to tell the origin story. I really like both Martin and Amanda, and we were kind of all starting jobs somewhat at the same time. Martin had started a little bit before us, and I, I had known them from different directions. And when we had started, you know, I was thinking, hey, we need to capture some of these things that are happening to us as new library directors and deans. Mm-hmm. And so I just kind of reached out to them with a chat and said, hey, we should write some articles about this. And that's how we actually got started writing was we wrote a three-piece series for College and Research Libraries News. And that, and then from there, eventually jumped into writing a, the much larger book. But kind of the same format came style. I, I knew both of them, really respected both of them and wanted to work with them. And that's kind of what got us going, is finding someone you wanted to work with. I have to say, as a relatively new uh, library dean myself, I started in my current position uh, not quite two years ago, in January of uh, 2018. This book is just chock full of practical, like, real-world advice. I'd even gotten my... doctoral degree in educational leadership, and yet there was so much in this book that I was like, why didn't somebody teach me that this? But it's also, I think a lot of it is sort of the the things that can only be learned by experience. And the conversational layout of this book makes it just so accessible. As a reader, you know, I kind of felt like reading some of this as I was sort of the third person at the table and we were like, you know, having a chat in between conference sessions or something. How did you decide on this this kind of slightly non-traditional structure for the book? I have to really credit Malcolm Gladwell and Bill Simmons, who are two people who would talk about sports through back and forth emails. And I always really, really liked it. So they would publish these back and forth conversations. And there's a bunch of other people who've done this as well. And like you just said, I always felt like I was sitting in the middle of the conversation Mm -hmm. with them. And so when I started working with Martin and Amanda, we live in very different places I wanted to do that exact same thing where we could just go back and forth. And then when we started to expand to the other authors, 
it made even more sense because everyone could engage in the process this way. So, it, you know, credit to people who've done it before, but it, it really brought exactly what you talked about of making people feel like they're part of the conversation. And that's why I always love that practice. I think one of the ha things that happened with the article series to start is we started out with this format and I think it worked really well for the three of us. Um, sort of playing off each other and realizing that we had experiences that would, you know, we could leverage off of each other's experience in this conversational style. And I think it was appealing to people and the converse, in the conversations that we were having in the articles were having resonance, I think. And then when we sat down, I think it was it an ALA midwinter, maybe? Yes. yes. ALA yeah, midwinter. Yeah, Denver in Denver and sort of just sat around the table around pizza and tried to think of a way to expand this into a book. Um, it seemed a really logical extension to try to extend this conversational style, but like bring more people to the table and try to bring more people that knew more stuff than we did to the <laughs> table. <laughs> yeah. Instead of just talking to each other, we were like pulling in people like Elaine Westbrooks and, uh, Yolanda Cooper and uh, so uh, we were really excited to uh, try to reach out to these other people for these conversational uh, interactions and we kind of split up the topics and we were debating who got which topic because I think we all wanted to talk about all of the topics mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, it, it sort of expanded from there. All of these conversations were really amazing and you know if I could do a two-hour podcast. We'd probably talk about all of them, but but there were four that really stood out for me. Kind of um, just both the quality of the articles themselves, and kind of in my particular situation about you know two two years into my deanship, kind of at the end of the beginning, you might say. And the first one that 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 I really wanted to talk about was uh, chapter two on teams, which Martin wrote with Lorelai Tangi who is university librarian at uh, UC Irvine. You know, so one of the fun things about doing uh, this book is that we had the opportunity to reach out and work with people whom we respect and some of whom uh, prior to the project we had the pleasure of knowing. And in other cases, it was a chance to reach out and make a connection with someone whom we had never met. And they were just so generous with their time that they're willing to talk to us. And this is one of those cases where Lorelai and I have only corresponded via email. We've only had this conversation uh, via our document. And so that really set it up to be an interesting conversation to say, hey, you know, what can we learn from each other based on the information that you share and how can we feed off of each other? I think this is a great example of how the conversational writing of the book really let us go down some uh, unique and uh, fruitful places. What are some of the different things, you know, based on your conversation with Lorelai that you have to think about? Kind of when you're in a situation where you may be a newcomer to an established team uh, coming in as the leader versus being in a position where you are actually making a lot of changes to a team. You know, I think one of the things that that was a, a takeaway for me from the conversation, and, and I think it also uh, really uh, went well with my experience uh, that, that it really resonated with that was you know, you, when you come in as a new leader, you still have this expectation that you've got the vision 
mm-hmm. and that you're going to figure out everything. And I'm like, hey, I just got here, you know, and <laughs> I don't want to force what I think you all need because I think that's presumptuous. Mm-hmm. Um, and trying to get to that point when you start to recognize the things that you think you you can see that need to be changed, how can you make sure that everyone wants to come along on the ride with you? And 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 so it's it, it once you do start to develop that vision, um, you have to make sure that it's not only your vision, that, is uh, so that true. it's something that will be embraced and upheld by the majority of the folks that you're working with. Um, and I think part of that comes with making sure that you are in some ways synthesizing where you think the library needs to go based on what you see the individual people on your team wanting to do. And so, you know, I, I think if you can create that coherent uh, kind of master vision, then that's where you'll get success when when people see their own work and their own hopes and dreams represented in what you see for the library. Yeah, that's so absolutely true. I mean, I, I describe it as like driving an empty bus versus making sure that actually people actually get on the bus before you start the engine, you know? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and because you have to make sure. So how do you do that? You have to make sure that the that the door is open so they can get into the bus. You have to make sure that they want to go to that same destination. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want to make sure that there aren't any barriers for people getting on. We can just take this bus analogy like right. Into <laughs> yeah, the we, we can we, we, want, we can beat this right know, into the ground. Yeah. You know, so but but I think that it's there are different ways that you have to prepare people for that journey, um, because if they're not engaged, then, you know, they're going to be pulling that cord to get off at the first stop. And now let's move on from the bus analogy. Let's move on from the bus analogy. <laughs> yes. Um, you and Lorelai also talked a lot about Peter Singh's uh, Five Disciplines for Learning Organizations, which is an excellent book, by the way, if anybody's not familiar. And it's definitely a useful framework for t- thinking about team dynamics in a learning organization. What is just, could you g- give sort of a brief overview of the framework for those who aren't familiar and maybe some ideas for how that it could be implemented in the process of building a team? Sure. So, you know, one thing that's, uh, you know, it's the, the if you're thinking about the, the fifth discipline, you're always wondering, well, what are those five disciplines? Um, and they include uh, shared vision, which I think we've already talked a little bit about the importance of that shared vision. Systems thinking, uh, where stepping back and seeing the big picture, which is something that's super important for deans and directors to be able to do. Uh, mental models, which is understanding um kind of what we tell ourselves about how we operate and how an organization operates. Um, And I think sometimes we think about this like knowledge management, about trying to understand uh, the unspoken, the unsaid of how we do things. Uh, But if if you don't understand where people are coming from and how you got to that way, then when someone who might be resistant says, well, you know, we've tried that before or, or we've always done it that way, that's really getting into opening the door of saying, well, what are the mental models that under, underlie your work? Team learning, which it, it's really important to see how uh, folks can learn together and make sure that you can take advantage of the synergies that come to when you put a bunch of smart people in a room. Um, and then finally, personal mastery. Uh, where it's important to create that space where people want to be able to make a difference and continue to grow towards that difference. And so that's thinking about how do we support professional development? How do we create 
an environment where people want to thrive, where, where they feel valued, where they feel that their contributions mean something and where they can see that they're making a difference. And, and because of what they're doing, that, that encourages them to get to that next level. So um, I, I think with, the, with those five areas, that's, uh, those are examples of, of just the, the many ways that, that this framework can influence the way that a director or a dean approaches uh, building a strong team for their organization. Yeah, yeah, that, that's also true. And I also think there is an element of time. You can't accomplish this stuff overnight, I don't think. No, you know, and I think that that's, uh, you know, one of, one of the things that was interesting for me was, uh, and I think I talked about it in one of the chapters, was having a, one of my librarians tell me about 11 months in, that I had one month left before I could start making it, you know, before I could make changes because my honeymoon period was closing. And if I didn't start making changes within that first year, then we were done. And I was just feeling like, huh, I think like I maybe am just starting to know what we could be doing or where we could be going. Uh, and so uh, while I, I do think that there is uh, a certain time period where maybe you can uh, – you are expected to, to come in and shake things up and, and maybe get away with making some changes that could be hard, but you can do it because you're the, you're the new person. Um, at least from my own personal experience at, at, at my institution, um, that was not the way to go about uh, having uh, effective change. It was, it was more important to build, have that time uh, to build trust, um, to let that vision develop and to get people on board so that we could actually be doing something useful uh, when we started to do things differently. Yeah, I totally understand that. I sort of came in on the opposite end. Uh, it kind of did things in reverse order to what you're describing. Um, I came into a scenario where the university was just about to embark on a major renovation of the building. Uh, there was some reorganization that needed to ha happen. And I hit, you basically had to hit the ground running and we were just in, you know, survival reconstruction mode for the first year. But then it was like I kind of had to go back to the beginning and do this, do sort of the team building work that you were talking about. So, you know, that has its pluses, but it also has its minuses, too. So. Yeah, I mean, I think that you, you can you can make any situation work. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's just a matter of, of trying to figure out uh you know, what, what's the best way to respond? Because I think that it had, I, I came into a stable place uh -huh. where that was in good shape. So we were not, you know, the house was not on fire. Right. So we could, we could take that time. And I think it is important to put your, put out the flames if that's what you need to do first. Yeah. And not exactly flames, but the, the, the construction oh. <laughs> vehicles were coming. I mean, it was in great shape, but yeah. Yeah. And then the second chapter I wanted to talk about here, or the second conversation, is about conversations, about uh, chapter seven, about difficult conversations. And this one, Dustin Fife did with Leslie Baker, director of the Ira A. and Mary Lou Fulton Library at Utah Valley University. So, Dustin, anything you want to share about uh, this chapter? I, I just want to point out first, we'd be remiss if we didn't recognize that Martin said synergies earlier. So everyone, if you haven't yet, take a shot, please. Um, I sense an in-joke. <laughs> no, just synergy is a word people should drink around. I, I'll go with that. I'm, I'm over here sipping my water. <laughs> um no, this is this is a conversation that, it, you know, it's about difficult conversations and making hard decisions. And I actually like the bus analogy earlier, 
partially for this purpose that one of the foundational ethics of this book and the reason we reached out to so many different leaders, we didn't just write it with one or two other people besides the three of us is because there is no one answer for any of these chapters or any of these questions. And it's really focused on being experiential and talking about what people have seen and done because there's a lot of different routes that those buses can take and a lot of different ways to enter leadership as well. I, you know, we've been working on it for the last 30 years, but we need to continue to beat down the narrative that there's a certain type of leadership that's going to mm -hmm. save the world or save your company or save your organization because, you know, it really has to reflect that individual and their authentic mission and relationship with everyone else. And that's kind of what this chapter about is about in general. The idea that regardless of whether, you know, Martin came into a fairly stable organization, I think you'll talk to Amanda and see that her experience was a little more like yours, that she yeah. was brought in to make changes and because there was a lot going on. I came into a very stable situation as well, but that didn't mean that almost immediately in small ways and eventually in large ways that there weren't difficult conversations to have. And that's what Leslie and I really kind of um, think about is the idea that these, these, these conversations and hard decisions are going to come to all of us. And there are things we can do to prepare ourselves personally and as an organization. And that's what the focus of the chapter is. Yeah, I really appreciated you and Leslie talking a, a fair bit about the need to approach these kinds of, you know, uh, challenging conversations from a coaching perspective. What do you think are some good ways that a leader can, sure, can ensure in the moment that they are approaching these conversations, which may be around issues of performance or other kind of touchy matters with that coaching mindset? You know, one of the things we talk about in there is doing the work beforehand to some extent. I know you're asking what we do in the moment. Or both, either leading up to or, or in the moment itself, yeah. Yeah, I was just going to say, if you haven't shown your people that you work with that you're invested in them beforehand, then it makes those conversations really, really hard. But if you've built a track record of showing them that you want to help them, help their career, help their lives, help them find their way, and not in a paternalistic way, but just in an organizational way, then when it comes to in the moment of having to sit down and say, hey, this isn't cutting it, you have all that cachet from showing your investment at you know, beforehand, that really works to everyone's advantage in the moment, and not just yours, but to theirs, because you have that established relationship to move forward with. Even if you have to make really hard choices, having difficult conversations and making hard decisions, and for what Leslie and I spoke about, was all about doing pre-work to make sure that everyone's going to be ready when those when those moments come. Yeah. Yeah, and that that makes sense because you really do have to have a have a plan to kind of come into those those conversations. What I do sometimes is I like write out like my ideal outcome for the conversation, and that can kind of, you know, I, I don't literally have a script, but it gives me ways that I can kind of steer things in, you know, the direction I'm hoping. Though, of course, there are always you always get into these conversations, and sometimes you find out that 
something totally different is going on than what you expected. How, how do you deal with kind of those moments of being flexible when the situation maybe isn't what you expected? I think it's like anything else. You have a place you need to get to, but if you haven't fully predetermined how you're going to get there, you're yeah. going to be a lot better off when you have those difficult conversations. If you're, if you know, hey, we need to improve X, but you don't go in dictating all of the ways that you're going to improve and actually make it a conversation and not make it a ruling of a court of some nature. <laughs> yeah. You're going to, you're going to be much better off. Um, you know, we all get to a point where we're, we're, yes, we're going to have to make a decision. You're going to possibly have to let someone go at some point in your career for performance reasons or for budgetary reasons. And you're going to have to make an awful choice, but as long as you have any flexibility to make things a conversation and give team members ownership in the process, you're going to, you're going to enjoy your life a lot more. Yeah. And I think that ownership piece is critical there because then they can help be the person who, you know, either co-creates or creates the plan that gets them to where they want to go and they're going to have more buy-in. Yeah. And like one of, when you read that chapter, one of the beautiful things about this book comes out immediately is you can tell that Leslie and I don't do things exactly the same, even yeah. when we're talking to each other about it. We're both, you can feel a little tug and pull at times when I'm trying to pull her a little my way or she's trying to pull me a little her way mm -hmm. to once again, just understand that there, there isn't a right answer here. There's just, you know, you being authentic and trying to get to what's best for everyone. Yeah. That that's exactly what it is. So, um, and then moving on to the third chapter, I wanted to talk about, which is on fundraising. This conversation was between Amanda and Yolanda Cooper, who is university librarian at Emory University of Atlanta. Um, I'm starting to dip my toe very gingerly into the realms of fundraising myself for the first time, and so I found this uh, chapter really helpful. Um, do you have any kind of th thoughts in general you wanted to add on it, Amanda? Oh, sure. Lots and lots. <laughs> um, I think this, I've seen it in lots of just job descriptions of deans and directors as just kind of like, this is what you're coming into, period, or ULs. And then I've seen it where it's not mentioned at all. And I think that uh, for any administrator uh, in academia these days, this has got to be a critical element in some way or another, whether or not you're out there making the ask, or you are developing the relationships, um, you are always laying the groundwork through what you're doing with the rest of the potential donor community. So uh, your alum, community members, um, even students down the road who could be alum and potentially donors, um, what you're doing is um, in some ways always uh, about fundraising. Yeah. How about that? Yeah, I think that I think that's that's true. And even if your job does not include that today as a director or a dean or a university librarian, it's going to ha to to include some sort of fundraising or advocacy somewhere down the road because we've got a situation on one hand where all of our resources are getting, you know, five to eight percent more expensive every year. And on the other hand, we're getting ready to those of us in traditional higher ed are getting ready to go in kind of a demographic trough in the next five years or so where we're going to need to make, you know, get more money out of fewer students potentially. So. Currently, I'm in a state university, and our 
um, balance of, you know, and a very small state university that's really a teaching university, so not got research dollars coming in, and our balance of, you know, what the state is putting in versus what tuition is contributing to the big picture has flipped from 60-40 15 years ago to 40-60, and the 40 not in the tuition area. Um, So... Uh, that just means that uh, alternate ways of funding become more and more critical. And as you said, you can't afford a flat budget anymore. And because of technology, we have to be constantly innovating. And of course, that's always expensive. The information sources change all the time. So um, how we get them to our students has to change. And so that just means, you know, expensive changes are happening constantly with libraries mm-hmm. and it's not always obvious to administrators that this is where, you know, you know, a 10% increase every year needs to go. Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. And, and, you know, even beyond kind of those day in day out expenses that we all know we have um, as, as a new leader, you and your team may have put together a strategic plan or even just a wish list of items that your library needs. Um, how would a leader kind of go about taking these ideas, maybe these kind of vague back of the napkin ideas or things from the strategic plan and kind of try to turn them into projects that might catch the interest of donors? So I think, you know, starting out, and these are so tied together, and I, I don't know that it's always intuitive, the mm-hmm. uh, strategic planning and visioning for your library is part and parcel of what you end up doing as a fundraiser yeah. or with advocacy for your library. And so I think that that process, regardless, uh, I mean, we need to get off the napkin, obviously, mm-hmm. but <laughs> whatever that process is really needs to uh, translate into some kind of thing you as a dean or director or UL are excited about, because that kind of excitement is what is going to, um, you know, inspire. And that's really what it takes now is to inspire um, your community that might want to come in and partner with you on um, creating these kinds of opportunities for your students. I don't think that um, people want to just give blanket money anymore. No. You know, I'm going to give you magic money to do with as you will, um, but they want to know how they're moving the needle in your area. And I think that's up to you to translate for every single person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and kind of with that in mind, because it's important to sort of think about about your audience, uh, what are things that leaders who are new to fundraising and may still be a little kind of, you know, tentative in those kinds of conversations, what, what should they keep in mind when they're uh, talking to and working with donors? So in terms of um, talking to and working with donors, the first and foremost thing is making sure you are on the same page as your foundation. Mm-hmm. You do not want to get outside no. <laughs> ever. So developing those relationships um, internally are very important and understanding the internal layout of fundraising or advocacy or however your university or, you know, if you're on a capital campaign, knowing what that's all about, you know, uh, is really important for you. So you don't somehow contact the same donor mm-hmm. asking for money for a different thing than the president asked for money the day before. Yes. That is like this case scenario. So laying that groundwork internally is really critical. And then once you have that, 
and probably, you know, simultaneous to all of the things we've talked about, the strategic plan and understanding the internal workings of your university, starting to build relationships, those sort of one-on-one personal relationships that are about reaching out to alum, reaching out to people who have um, interests that dovetail with the interests of your library. So we are, for example, um, pushing into becoming the Center for the Study of the History of Mississippi Women, which hasn't been taken by anybody else for whatever reason. And we are uh, the first public university for women in the country. And we were historically a women's university until the 80s. So we feel like we've got a lot of our own archives to contribute to that. But there are a lot of Mississippi women's historians, Southern women's historians, Southern historians who uh, are have a natural interest in what we're doing. Um, and then, of course, our alum have uh, manuscripts and papers and things like that that are interesting for us. And um, asking for someone's papers often translates into developing that kind of relationship with them. So there are lots of different avenues that I have taken, you know, just in that sort of piece alone. Um, we also had a library science Um, degree program that was phased out also in the 80s Um, but there are all of these library science alum that are deeply interested in all the I came into a really similar um, sort of startup situation that it sounds like you might have had some kind of flavor of Sarah with Mm -hmm. the new building and you know um, with the new building there's always personnel stuff and anyway um, so we've gotten to do a lot of new things. Um, we were part of a bond funded operation. So everything was kind of a scrap it and ground up, which is exciting. So we got a robot. Yeah. And people really yeah. want to see the robot. <laughs> so, um, anyway, you can pull people in and build those relationships down the road will, um, provide, uh, and I'll give you an example. I was going for fruit of the labors, but anyway, um, So I had a donor who was a Southern women's historian who um, had already had uh, a scholarship in her sister's name. Her sister went to the school um, and she was uh, interested in the university in lots of ways, but I've made contact with her and sort of brought her into the fold into what was going on in the library and uh, talked to her. And so she gave us her books write her collection. She was retiring and gave us her book collection. Um, And then uh, we had a big ceremony for her for donating the book collection. And so that was the beginning of relationship that um, they heard me talk at a scholarship luncheon a couple of months ago and just sent a check-in because they were inspired by this talk. And so you sort of lay the groundwork that ends up with not even intentionally doing actual fundraising, but inspiring people by what you are doing in the library. Mm -hmm. I I get into this a little bit, but we're, we're more focused on grant writing now to build up our caching. I just would say a thousand times what she started with now that we've come to an end to not forget, like make sure you're aligning with your foundation with Uh what other ever offices you, you work all of these things through or else you really can end up frustrating somebody who's above you and getting in lots of trouble. I haven't done it yet, but I've seen it happen a few times and I'm, I'm working towards trying it. Yeah. Every hopeful fundraiser's 
first call before anybody else should be to their university's advancement department or foundation or however your group, your, your organ, your university holds it. Uh, we, we're really fortunate to have a great advancement team at LaSalle and they're sort of, you know, helping me along in the process. And, 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 and you're going to find, make that call because not only will you be protecting yourself, they are going to have expertise beyond your wildest dreams and really be able to help you kind of come up with a game plan. As a part of that, I will say, just to continue, is you say yes to anything they ask you for. Uh-huh. They want to put you in front of somebody, you say yes. They want to fly you to Dallas tomorrow, you say yes, even if it's the most inconvenient thing for you in the world. I just, um, that is the way to build those relationships. And those are really personal relationships that, can carry you through. I mean, I just, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Very well said. Yeah. Well, then the last chapter I kind of wanted to talk about uh, today is chapter six, which is the only conversation that was between the three of you. And it's on recruiting and retaining a diverse team. And I thought it was notable uh, both because of that topic, but also because it was, well, three um, self-described white library leaders kind of intentionally talking in their audience, aiming their conversation at other white library leaders about how to recruit and retain a diverse team and also about facilitating a culture of equity within academic libraries. And I'm just kind of curious in particular how this chapter came about and and kind of the, the reasons that you you guys decided to tackle this topic in this way. So we, um, this was actually really envisioned originally as a different kind of chapter, and it was uh, a chapter I was writing with somebody else, and that kind of fell through, and as we were um, brainstorming what to go do and how to go from there, it became clear that we all had a lot to say about this topic and had, you know, struggled, obviously we had all had a lot to say about all the topics, so that was not really unusual, but um there was a lot of passion. I think uh, each of us uh, have a lot of passion for um, building diverse teams and in terms of diversity in the library world. And also we were sort of realizing that this was a great way to sort of surface this very obvious thing or obvious to us mm-hmm. that here we are white people talking about things together that, you know, obviously we brought in a lot of other voices to it, but here was a chapter that um, we were talking to each other about, and we wanted to make it really explicit that this was a conversation that needed to be happening and that this is sort of white people talking to other white people about how we can be better. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's because, you know, we, we were really inspired by uh, Robin DiAngelo's White Fragility, mm. um, and, and it seemed especially timely with um, – you know, her uh, recent appearance at an ALA uh, conference about saying that, you know, if 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 white people are hesitant to talk about their own complicity in maintaining the power structures that we all work within, and especially if white leaders um, are hesitant to do that, then we're not going to see any change. Uh, and that it's important also to address it to each other to say, these are the things we have to do. Uh, we can't expect or, or ask our colleagues of color 
to come in and say, okay, now we have you here, fix our diversity issue, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or now that we've now that we've hired you, everything's great, and we're not going to talk about the underlying structural racism that is still ever present in our profession. Yes. Well, and I think a lot of it Martin touched on there is just us being examples of trying, you know, we didn't, that chapter is not perfect. We're not perfect, but like, we have to do the work. We have to change policies. We, we can't just have a single diversity hire and call a, a research university good because we have uh, that diversity chair committee or whatever it is at this point that there's so much that we have to do if we're going to make structural change. And truthfully, since leadership is still predominantly white, since policy is still predominantly controlled by white people, if this is something we say we value, which we do in our, you know, in our professional documents and in our university mm-hmm. charters and things like that, if it's something we actually value, we are the ones who have to disrupt and make and force structural change through. Well said. Um, and once again, we don't want a point where this is a bunch of white people patting each other on the back for having an original thought, because this isn't an original thought. No. This is so built on all of the work that all, all of these scholars of color and all of these librarians that have historically done to try to build an organization, but we have not done enough and we're not doing enough. And as three white library leaders, we took that opportunity to write that chapter predominantly for other white people to say, you know, get your stuff together and start listening and start doing work. Yeah. And to just go um, a little bit further with that, we really, or I, we really tried to say what we weren't doing right. You know, that there were things that we were still wanting to do more of, you know, there's no place to stop here. It's not as though you get to a plateau and you're like, yes, I have now done all the things that it is a constant (laughs) and ongoing struggle. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that is, that is so true. Is there a good, I don't know, first step isn't quite the right word, but is sort of the, the fourth white person in this conversation. Is there sort of um, kind of a, a good next step that you might encourage uh, leaders who are looking at ways that they can confront these issues to sort of take as they uh, work towards improving how their library is doing around these issues of inclusion and equity? I, I would start with... Personally, I would start with your policies because, you know, reviewing them through a critical lens of saying, how do these policies either reinforce or rebuild structural systems of oppression? How how do our loan policies, how do like even all of your little policies about how your spaces are used? To me, that's the place to start um, because there's a lot that you don't control because you're part of a larger university. So start with the things you do control and then push upwards and outwards from there. I think for me, um, I think it is part of policy, but to be the place, you know, you can't invite people into your community and say, you know, this is the place for diversity. Diverse, I mean, I'm, I'm in Mississippi. Do you know mm-hmm. I'm in a small yeah. town in Mississippi? And uh, you have to be a place that people feel safe, that they feel um, wanted, uh, and that they uh, uh, want to bring new ideas um, and new um, perspectives to. Uh, and you can't do that if you are 
um, and some sort of status quo, and again, trying to get somebody to bring bring diverse uh, faculty in to help you fix it. You have to fix it mm-hmm. and be fixing it and be in the process of that, um, uncovering what is going on for you, for the university, um, working on fixing it, working on the place people want to be. You know, I think it's also this is like bringing it back to the, the the five disciplines we were talking about before. Knowing what the mental model is around diversity is really important work to do because yeah. I think we all can. Uh, it, it'd be hard to find a library or a university that doesn't have an, a non discrimination clause that says all the right things, or mm-hmm. or may have a diversity and inclusion plan that says all the right things. And then when you actually start to want to make changes, you get pushback because we haven't really started to question what's under what's what's underlying all of that. You know, we, we've had an active. Uh, diversity and inclusiveness team for the last couple of years at my library, and, and we're doing a review of where we are in our current plan. And there are some areas where we have saying, you know, where we're still getting pushback here, or, you know, this is what we said we would try to do two years ago, and it's not enough. We need to be mm-hmm. clearer. And I think part of that was trying to, to suss out what other people are, are feeling about it. And part of it was also having that time and space for us to get to that point where we can be honest about what, what our failures are, uh, where we don't see it as yeah. an indictment, but more of, you know, look, let's, if we're going to actually make changes, then we have to change the way we think and feel about this. Uh, I remember when I was first starting some of this work within ALA, talking with a, a, a colleague and friend who was saying, you know, a lot of this work is about changing your own heart. Um, mm. And that's really challenging because you can't force other people to change their hearts, but you can create a space for that change to occur. And um, that um, that's what I hope um you know, we can do, especially when you're in a position of privilege, is to create that space where true introspection, uh, where true reflection can lead to a recognition of, hey, this is how I'm part of the system and this is what I can do to change it. Yeah. And I think one of the ways that that all happens with policy and changing hearts, the piece in the middle of that is like having an action plan. Yeah. And like, making people walk through it and that's how they end up confronting the part of their heart that might need a little tending um there yeah and the the reason we wrote this chapter is the the same kind of caveat we'd give with making your action plan at universities we always make our few representatives of color do all of this work uh-huh. so don't don't just go to you know, the, the, the two people of color on your campus and be like, help us write our action plan. Um, yeah. You have to you have to carry weight and do work and not expect other people, especially people from marginalized communities, to do the work for you. Amen. Yeah. Another piece that John Cawthorn sometimes talks about that I really like that's, you know, in terms of building, you know, we the percentage of, you know, people of color in librarianship certainly just overall is very low. Mm-hmm. And then as you get to sort of the dean director level, you know, along with women, it gets a smaller percentage than you might imagine. Right. Uh, it would get um, for any kind of diversity all the way at the top, which was one of the reasons to write this chapter in this way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
but uh, really think consciously about how you are um, contributing to the pipeline of faculty or librarians in the profession. So even from your students, and I think somebody does a student fair. Was it Martin? Yeah, we. I mean, we're we're trying. We're we're looking at different ways that we can encourage more underrepresented folks to consider uh, librarianship as a profession. And we we actually tried to get into the university's graduate school and career fair, but the career folks. Uh, didn't have room for us. So we started our own career for fair called Careers You Haven't Considered and opened it up to the rest of the community. And then we have been working to and with affinity groups and with our multicultural office to try to get students coming into that and also talking to the student workers that we already have uh, who would help us diversify the profession and, and, and helping them to see that it's not just a work-study job, but it's a career uh, that is meaningful um, and that is life-changing, uh, both for the people who are in it and the people whom we serve. And so trying to be do what we can. Like, we don't have a library science program at our school, but we can certainly do some recruiting at our end. Yeah, because we have folks who are, are student workers who are there every uh, – they're, you know, 20 hours a week. They're thinking about their future careers and um, it's it's like the world's best opportunity to recruit people in, in, into our profession. I've worked with so many people, past and present, who have gone that route and, and kind of intentionally approaching those people who have kind of the skills and the viewpoints that we want to make sure are, are reflected in our in our profession is a really just kind of obvious way to kind of start. So. I was just going to say, I feel like careers you haven't considered is the best name for a memoir about library and information science. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. I was just going to go on to say that the same thing applies to staff. And I think yes. people have talked about this and talked about it, but I'm really making opportunities for your staff who might be interested in uh, library science, you know, faculty or librarian positions to have flex time to do courses or mm -hmm. just encourage people um, who you think or who might be interested with words, <laughs> you know, yeah. that this is an open career and open profession and uh, that there are places to go and ways to double your money <laughs> if you um, get XYZ degree, which can happen in only two years, yes. you know, <laughs> act now, <laughs> act now. <laughs> You should, you should have an infomercial. That would be awesome. I should. I should. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think that's our cue to start winding this conversation down a little bit. What What did each of you learn about leadership while writing this book? I'll just go first and say, like, besides the little things you learn of, like, oh, they did this, and they looked like this, and they did this differently, um from like little tips on how to manage time and little tips on how to have better conversations. There's something you said that Leslie said too, when I was writing that chapter on difficult conversations is like, she would think about difficult conversations beforehand and, and write down some thoughts about where she wanted it to go. Even if she wasn't scripting a conversation, and I was like, Oh, that, that's a, that's a great way to prepare yourself. So like besides all those little tips, it was just the reinforcement from reading all these chapters and seeing all these different people that, hey, you can get to leadership in a lot of different ways and you can do it a lot of different ways. 
And when people are doing it differently, librarianship is stronger. When we have all these different perspectives and people doing things differently because of their own experiences, we are so much stronger as a profession and our organizations are stronger than just trying to focus on that one kind of Lee Iacocca, I don't know, bull crap example of leadership that every white dude in an MBA program was taught for 30 years, 40 years. Yep. I think for me, um, there were a couple of things. One of the chapters that I got a lot out of personally was working with Faye Chadwell on a chapter on maintaining your personal values, which was mm-hmm. something that she and I both being Southern and having uh, maybe a specific political bent yep. might have um really thought through because if you're talking about fundraising, you're talking about your alumni base and you're talking about what you value, um, what are you bringing to the table and really exploring that with her was so powerful for me um, and kind of getting to a place that I realized that I was living into my values through programs that I was starting. We had a, a program, the student emergency fund that we started that really was reaching out to students who were in you know, crisis and getting them past that hump. And that meant a lot to me. I was raised by somebody who worked in the welfare department in Mississippi for 30 years. And so the ways that you tap into who you are as a person and are able to bring that to the table, I think are so powerful. And then just, just let's say conversely in a much more practical um, sense, the um, budgeting chapter. Mm -hmm. I know we all um, struggle with budgets um, walking in. There are very few ways that can prepare you for the dynamic monster that is a library budget, um, especially as, you know, you're moving money around and things are coming in over budget and under budget. And it's like a video game of yeah. some kind, you know, and uh, not in a fun way. Although I, I kind of think it's fun now, but in the chapter that, Martin did with Maggie the part about the politics of budgets and how you're representing yourself politically and how you're representing who you are and how that is, you know, an outgrowth of your strategic plan really set me back to the table in terms of working through my perspective of not just trying to like make sense of the money, but also make sense of my story as a dean and, you know for me I, i'd say that the uh there, there wasn't one you know topical thing that that really stood out but more uh i think with the conversations that i had with all of the all of my co-authors as well as watching the conversations unfold with my with with uh, in dustin and amanda's chapters i, I took uh comfort uh, in seeing that everyone struggles <laughs> and that everyone has opportunities to learn and that a lot of this, uh, you know, success in, in large part is due to, you know, sticking with it, learning from your mistakes, uh, and then being able to go and take that experience and make better choices, make better decisions. Uh, and so, you know, some of it's that fake it till you make it yep. philosophy and, 
especially with, you know, it, it seems like there's so many new library deans and directors right now that we're kind of at one of those generational shifts where the, the next group is rising up that we're all there for each other. And while, you know, we may have been in the game now for, you know, four or five years and, and feel like we know a little bit more about what we're doing. It wasn't that long ago that we were still grasping at straws and there still are going to be situations that I will come across that will be out of my depth and out of my comfort zone. But I know that I have a network of people to whom I can turn and where I can get advice. And that's you know the, the kind of conversations that we had in writing this book. I intend to keep having those conversations for some time to come. Yeah. And, and I think my... As a reader of this book, I think I came away with similar lessons, both around the fact that we are all, it doesn't matter if you've been doing this for a year or for 20 years, you are still learning, you are still making mistakes, you're still growing. And, you know, at least if you're doing your job right, you you are still growing and evolving as, as a leader. And also that importance of connections and having those colleagues that you can reach out to and, and talk to in those challenging times. Just one more thing. Mm -hmm. We are actually doing a program on the first chapter on making the leap at ALA annual. Um, And I think that was one of the most practical chapters for any kind of librarian coming into any sort of leadership, um, sort of examining who you are and what you want out of life. And but her stuff on exactly what to do was just like oh, yeah. dead on. Um, and I I thought um, that would we all thought that that would make a great program at ALA, and so we're going to be doing that at annual. So any podcast listeners who are at ALA annual this coming year, please join us. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> And I'll add one more thing as well, because I want the final. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> classic, classic Dustin. Classic. Treat, treat your network like I treated reaching out to Martin and Amanda. Like the reason I chose to reach out to them is because I wanted to work on a project with them and they're not jerks. Like there's lots of really great people out there who aren't worth your time if you have to spend a lot of time with them. Um, writing this book was lovely because working with Martin and Amanda is lovely and reading their words was wonderful and getting to see all the people they worked with was great. So think about yourself that way too, like build a network with people that you want to spend time with, not just people who have more experience than you. Yeah. Yeah. That is, that is so absolutely true. I recently, uh, started a new blog on leadership stuff called the kind leadership guild and, um, yeah, it, 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 you just have to, to get along in this world, you have to connect with the other people who are looking to make the world a better place and do it in a kinder way. That's so true. Okay. Well, thank you all so much for your t- time today. Is there anything else you'd a- like to add or is there a way that folks can get a hold of you? E- email any of us if you have any questions. We're all very, very approachable. Um, I don't know if you want us to say our email addresses or you can reach out to us on Twitter too. Um, yeah, Twitter handles um, are fine or whatever you want to use. Yeah, you're welcome to put our email addresses and our, our Twitter handles in the text of the, the podcast when you post it. Okay. Please reach out to us. If you search Amanda Clay Powers, there's like a hundred ways to get at me and any of them are fine. 
Yeah, and if you spell my name right, you're either going to find me or my cousin in England who used to be a librarian. So either way, you'll you'll find us. And and cousin Martin t- sends me stuff all the time, so we're cool. Wonderful. Well, thank you all for your time today. I I really enjoyed reading this this book, both you know for interviewing purposes and and kind of for my own professional development. And again, anybody who is a library leader who is about to be a library leader who is thinking about le- being a library leader who has to put up with library leaders, you might want to take a look at this: a starter's guide for academic library leaders. Thank you. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks. Thank you. Circulating Ideas is produced by Steve Thomas in the suburbs of Atlanta. Views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect those of my place or work or the place of work of guests. For past interviews, visit circulatingideas.com and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or your podcast app of choice. And help others find the show by leaving a rating or a review. You can follow the show on Twitter at CircIdeas or like the show's Facebook page. Music is by Pamela Klicka. Thanks for listening and keep circulating your ideas.